Hello and welcome to the show. Today we have Anne and Heather, a mother-daughter team. They're organizational leadership development experts at Caliber Leadership System and Systems, a boutique consulting firm specializing in dismantling dysfunction in organizations. They are dedicated to empowering individuals, leaders, and organizations to achieve their potential by leveraging their expertise in the neurobiology of human development combined with system thinking approach. It sounds very specialized. <laughs> so quite a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> well, welcome to the show. And Thank and you. uh like we were talking, uh let's let's how did you get into doing this? Well, I, I think um Anne and I actually were a mother-daughter team, but we met when I was 27. Um, so a little bit of a, a, an interesting story. And Anne had given me up for adoption when I was born. And, and when we came together later in life, we discovered that we were doing similar kinds of work, but in a different way. And where I was in working with organizations and building systems in organizations, Anne was doing work on the behavioral side and on the emotional development side. So she was doing coaching. And we started talking about some of the challenges that we found that our clients were facing. And on my case, it was we would build out these systems to try and get to a certain organizational culture or a certain kind of performance outcome, but then nobody would change their behavior. So it would like we'd all agree to it, but then there would be no behavioral change. And then on Anne's side, she was her clients were coming frustrated because their leaders and their organizations were making it difficult for them to do their jobs. And, and so we sort of thought, hey, this is this is kind of a little bit of a sweet spot to really kind of figure out the people side of business, which is the one that, you know, we'll hear people say, yeah, work is great, except for sometimes the biggest challenge that leaders in particular often face is how do we deal with the people? So it sort of emerged from there um, into that place of specialization of, you know, behavioral change, especially in dysfunctional environments. And yeah. with entrepreneurs, yes, <laughs> which is our, our, favorite people to work with because they they have this passion for what they're doing and most have a passion for learning and growing and developing just as they're growing and developing their business they themselves want to know how to be out in front of it or how to how to take care of their people and and really um, use best practices in their business as well so that everybody has the experience of being with them in in this in this very exciting thing that they're doing. Not a hundred percent. It's not all entrepreneurs that work that way, but the the types of organizations that we tend to find ourselves working with are those people who really want to build something to last. Yeah, and it's it's always. It's ever evolving, ever changing all the time. So you're always going to have some sort of anxiety, you know, should I make this move? Should I not make this move? So, you know, you have to have some people or mentors or coaches involved to kind of guide you through all those tough times, right? But every time you typically have anxiety, you're always also learning. And, you know, it's another learning curve, right? Like, why do I have to do this? But but you, but you got to, because if you yeah. don't, you're, you're staying stagnant, right? And you can't yeah. grow as an organization being stagnant. 
we always say that, it, you know, discomfort comes hand in hand with growth and development. So if you're not feeling discomfort in any moment, you're, you're not growing because you're not moving out of your comfort zone. And as entrepreneurs, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, we're out of our comfort zone all the time. And it's like, yeah, not really. It's like, because as entrepreneurs, our comfort zone may be a little bit broader, a little bit different than other people's. And so we can work within that space, but we can always see when, you know, as the entrepreneur, you're having to evolve yourself because your organization is maybe even grown past some of your own capabilities. And that's when the discomfort really starts, right? And there, you know, that argument in the head of, yeah, I want to get bigger. And then the other part of your voice says, no, I want to stay smaller. And, and so we get caught a little bit in that tug of war sometimes. And, and that's where, you know, sort of understanding that so you can navigate that, that discomfort is actually to a degree is what we want to feel, what we need to feel, because that shows that we're developing as humans, right? And, and to, just to add to that, um, most entrepreneurs tend to have a particular brain style, which means that their comfort zone is in growing and expanding and, and taking risks. And stepping out of their comfort zone may mean um, having to follow the systems that they put in place in their business because they don't want to, or slowing down to attend to the, the needs of their employees or or really paying attention to what, what people are complaining about or what's going wrong internally. They don't wanna do that. They don't wanna slow down because they're not comfortable in that arena. Yeah, no, I've, I've worked for a few entrepreneurs uh, before I became an entrepreneur that uh, they'd have systems and processes in place and then they wouldn't follow it themselves. <laughs> And then because of that, the staff would always complain and the culture would be dismantled because they say, you know, it was more of a do as I say, not as I do culture. So they didn't feel they had any respect for the owner, which then was causing the culture to, you know, to, you know, kind of crumble. And the only reason why they were there is because they're getting paid a good paycheck, right? Which, you know, isn't good in terms of like, culture right like at all but however you know kind of go into that how do you cure uh, a toxic workplace <laughs> well it's 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 um you know that it is possible we hear some people say well it's not possible because you know people will never change and and the fact is that it is possible to go in it and where we always start with is um looking at what people are complaining about because that those complaints, you know, that lead them to label it as being toxic is are the symptoms. And then we can under, look at what's the root cause behind it. And almost always it comes down to, you know, what is it that the leaders are doing or are not doing that's allowing this toxicity or this dysfunction to really emerge and, and take root within the organization. And so, for example, we have a client where, um, you know, part of their toxicity is, is silos. And so their organization is so siloed that, you know, once one team will say X and the other team will automatically say Y just because they have to, you know, sort of maintain that silo and, and that opposition. And when we look at, you know, sort of how do we get rid of that? Well, it comes down to the leadership at the top isn't insisting 
on alignment to something because they haven't defined anything. They haven't defined what that expectation is. They haven't defined how this is all supposed to come together. And so each leader underneath them running these separate functions get to do whatever they feel like doing. And, and so that's where we sort of go after it, looking at it from a behavioral perspective and how are the leaders contributing to it, but also what do we need to put in place in terms of systems, structures, definitions, expectations to start to shift that behavior and break through that toxicity. And, and to, to your example, Benjamin, where it's actually the entrepreneur that doesn't want to align themselves um, to, to their own systems, that person um, working with that person specifically and coaching them and, and really showing them what they have to lose because it is a cycle and entrepreneurs go through this all the time. They go through that building and destroying because they don't want to change their behavior and they do it again and again. And they always blame it's the, it's the marketplace or it's the employees or it's always something other than them. It's like a kid that won't take responsibility for their own behavior because in, in essence, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are driven by, I want to do what I feel like doing, you know, and I want other people to help me, but I don't want to ever really stop doing what I love to do. What, what really charges me up and, and not having built enough capacity say leadership development capacity or self-awareness or emotional intelligence, they get stuck in this cycle and the business fails to launch. Yeah. I've, I've had lots of like with me just driving around and I talk to customers all the time and some of them are entrepreneurs, some of them are retired and I'll, I'll have some of them say to me, you know, where are you right now with your business? I said, well, it's just me, but I'm, you know, I'm getting to that point where, we're getting close to being able to start hiring people and expanding. We're getting that, you know, close. Right. And he's like, if I could do it all over again, I'd never hire anybody. I just do it for myself. Employees, <laughs> employees are the problem. You know, this is the problem. And I was like, okay. Yeah. But, but yeah. not everybody knows about me that I'm used to managing 15 to 30 people and right. having those yeah. people underneath me. And I have a lot of those skills and, when I worked at Best Buy, I, you know, you develop a lot of those skills in leadership because they have a lot of really good systems and processes mm -hmm. uh, in place. And everything's kind of like a hierarchy at Best Buy, at right. least when I was there in 02 to 06, it was right. So, you know, you have a lot of that training, but not a lot of people have that training. A lot of people, you know, like I was telling you, you know, off camera, I'm part of a networking group. And a lot of those guys will talk about how they started it being an entrepreneur and the first 10 years, they did everything wrong. They had, they treated employees like crap. They didn't take care of them. They were rude to them. They, you know, employees ended up stealing from them because they treated them like such crap. You know what I mean? Like all these, these kinds of things that they did wrong. And the whole point of the that networking group that we're in is for them to tell us that, you know, learning from your mistakes and we're trying to tell you we did all this wrong the first 10 years of being an entrepreneur we don't want you to make those same mistakes right and a lot of times people you know you you go and become an entrepreneur and you don't um you're, you're stumbling into it and you don't know how you should be treating these people or you hire family right which which sometimes can be a challenge, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know you guys are family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there, done that. 
But, you know, it's, it's interesting what you're saying, though, because the, the flips, you know, you're giving those examples about the entrepreneurs who go in and they don't know how to treat their employees. And we, we see the opposite sometimes, too, where the entrepreneurs where they want to be liked and they want to be seen as, you know, the cool guy or gal. And, and, and so they get really permissive and really hands off. And we've gone into organizations where and again, founder led organizations where they've got employees like who are working whatever hours they feel like working, showing up or not showing up, delivering, not delivering. And and the discomfort that those folks have to deal with is actually getting in. They don't like to be led. A lot of us become entrepreneurs because we don't necessarily want to follow somebody else. But we then treat our people as though we can manage them hands off in the same way we can be managed hands off. Right. And, and that creates huge messes. And so that, no, you actually have to define, you have to direct, you have to set expectations, you have to hold people to it. And I know for Anne and I, one of the things that we've always done is our first hire is always a business manager who's going to be hands-on with our people because it's counter to our style and our personality. And a lot of the times we find entrepreneurs, they'll go after hiring other roles without thinking about what do I need as the entrepreneur and, and what's best going to help me to grow this business um, and, and what's that skill set that's really going to complement. And, and it's one of the advantages, of course, Anne and I have because of the work we do around personality and behavior. We were very, very intentional always about having this person who is more execution oriented, more detailed, more hands on, because it was a really good balancing off of us, the two of us, which are more big picture hands off. I just want to go do my work. And can you just read my mind and go do what you need to do, right? <laughs> mind reader. Yeah. Looking for mind reader on <laughs> <Yeah>. Indeed. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful? <laughs> well, and and we we also have the this notion that you know smart people are emotionally developed and and that our emotions don't influence our behavior. But you see a lot in entrepreneurs where we like to do what we feel like doing. And and that's it. It's as simple as that. It's what we feel like doing, what excites us, where our passion lies, is what causes us to behave the way that we do. And it causes us to be successful in, in getting a product to market, for example, or working the kinds of hours that most entrepreneurs end up working because we love doing it. But what we don't enjoy doing, um, you know, those are the things that we'll ignore and that becomes our Achilles heel. And, and Heather and I have always talked about this as the Peter Pan syndrome, where I, you know, I'm like a kid. I just wanna keep playing, <laughs> don't get in my way. And if you don't read my mind, if you don't figure out what it is I want you to do, I'm going to yell at you just like a little kid would yell. You see, and, and, and the entrepreneurs get into these habits of more childlike behavior and not really having that capacity to be aware of the impact that they're having. Yeah, I agree with you on what exactly what you're talking about, because I do see this in a lot of like friends businesses and stuff like that, where they get stressed out because let's say the money's not coming in and then they start treating the employees like garbage or yelling at them or they're taking the stresses out on them because the business isn't coming in yeah. instead of just realizing that if they stress the employees out, they're now adding the stress throughout the entire company instead yeah. of just going like the money's not coming in. I need to get a loan or I need to do something. I need to keep these people here to keep the ship moving. Yes. Right. And yeah. that's kind of the, I see it all the time. And I always like, 
I always think to myself, you know, I, you know, sooner or later, I'm going to have 10, 15, 20 employees and we're going to be big and we're going to be in multiple markets and it's going to be awesome. You know, I have to make sure that the, when, when you're going through those, you know, those, uh, the, you know, the, when you're going through the valleys, which are going to suck, you need to make sure you're not taking it out on the staff, right? Unless it actually is the staff's fault, like they screwed <laughs> up, right? That's a whole different conversation, but well, you can't. Yeah, holding them accountable. It's interesting too that that the, one of the other things we see entrepreneurs doing is that if employees don't deliver what they believe they've asked for, they immediately go to blame the employee. And and it's one of the things where you know sort of we look at us as entrepreneurs. It's like we're often what we're really good at is like again that conceptual, that inspiring, that growing. And sometimes we're not always good at getting down into the specifics and giving information to our employees in a way that they can actually follow and execute the way we want. And so we get frustrated and then we say, okay, well, that employee's not good enough and we'll swap them out for someone else and we'll have the same issue with the next one and the next one. And in this pattern, it's like I was saying around Peter Pan with the entrepreneurs is like, if you don't, if you don't do it the way I think you should do it, I'm not going to get in and work with you and slow down enough to make sure that you can be successful. And we see a lot of entrepreneurs getting in their own way because they're constantly scapegoating out. Well, I just need to replace this person and then it'll all be good. And it's like, no, 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 you need to look at yourself. <laughs> like, just like, you know, if I, my, if one of my staff missed something, one of our staff missed something, I'm like, okay, what did I not communicate that led to that? And how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? So you focus on the actual issue, not this sort of tendency to want to just blame the other person. Like I'm all good. And you know, it's everybody else's fault if it doesn't work well, because as the entrepreneur, like you're at the center of everything. And so you have to look at your role in anything in any spot in your organization where it isn't quite working the way you want it to work. Yeah, no, I, I, so I have a friend of mine, <laughs> he doesn't listen to the podcast, but I always talk to him and I, I'm trying to explain to him, he keeps, he has it in his head as an entrepreneur. I just need another me. If I just get another me, <laughs> right. You know, then we're good. No. And I keep explaining to him, no, you need to find someone who will complement your strengths. So someone who will take care of your weaknesses that will compliment you. That's what you need, right? Like there's already things I know within my business. I'm like, I really don't enjoy doing this or that or that. And believe me, when I get the chance, I'm going to be hiring somebody to do that stuff, right? So, And if we think of the, of the business as an actual entity separate from the entrepreneur, which is a stage that we all have to go through and, and not just looking at what we need, but looking at what the business needs. And a business doesn't need two entrepreneurs because then you're going to be going in, in two different directions. It, you know, it may seem logical to think that way, um, but emotionally, it, it's simply saying, I want someone who is going to make my life easier so that I don't have to learn any skills or step out of my comfort zone or do any development or really take my business seriously. I have to stop playing and look at what my business needs outside of what I, I want to be doing because what I want to do in playing and meeting my own needs is very different than what the business needs. Yeah. We see, it's funny. We see this with co-founders all the time. Yes. That, that, you know, they think it's going to be great. Oh, I'm in this and I'm, you know, building this business with a co-founder. It almost never works. And, and if you look even over the, 
course of history where there's been co-founder relationships that works is one of them has clearly been you know, sort of the dominant. So they were not equal in their co-founders or in the roles that they played inside of the organization. And and we see entrepreneurs get stuck where they've got a co-founder where one starts driving in a slightly different direction and they don't feel comfortable managing each other or managing the other person's performance. And it's amazing how destructive it can be actually be to the business. Um, and and so that's the idea. It's like I know I wouldn't I wouldn't want to work for myself. I can't imagine <laughs> It's like, it's like I come in and go, I'm going to do this myself. I can do it. So that's, that's the reality. And to your point is that really understanding as a, a you need to be self-aware as an entrepreneur. If you really want to be successful, it's like take the time, go through and do an entrepreneurial assessment, leadership assessments. Uh, we use the Striving Styles, which is our product, Myers-Briggs, any one of those where, uh, and I know Colby is one that often gets talked about around entrepreneurs to really help understand, you know, your own energy and where your behavior goes and what it is that you need in order to feel satisfied and then look for people that fit against that and using that kind of mechanism when you're in the selection process because you really are trying to put a puzzle together that's going to work effectively and you, you know we've seen entrepreneurs where they keep hiring in this type of person and and it, they don't work up against the entrepreneur and so it's like had really starting to look at things in that more objective way rather than, oh, I really seem to click with them. So they're going to be great. And then, you know, three months later, oh no, they're terrible. I had to let them go. Right. So trying to break out of that pattern starts with self-awareness in the entrepreneur for sure. Yeah. I, so I'm, I'm watching this uh, series on Netflix. I don't know if you've watched it or not yet. It's like a, kind of like this story of how Spotify was created. <laughs> no. And, uh, but the way they do it, is they're doing it from like everybody's different point of view within the organization. So it's like the lawyer they hired, it's that person's point of view. You know, it's uh Daniel Eck, whichever one probably knows who he is. Yeah. It's his point of view of how it all took place and how Spotify was created and the co-founder and the co-founder's point. Of so it has all these different point of views of what really happened. And it's interesting watching <laughs> all of them. And I don't know if they just designed it this way or if this was everybody's individual story, but you know, that's how it is like in a business. And it's very much like, you're like, you ask the accountant, so what really happened there? And they have a different story. And everybody has this this different story of what really happened. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have to manage all the, the egos, right? You have to manage all the egos within your organization. You have to manage all the employees. You have to keep them all in check. You have to make sure that you're very clear with communication so there isn't like these spun off different stories of what really happened, right? So... It's a, it's a really good point in, in just separating out those the difference in the competency of wanting to grow a business, wanting to take an idea to market, and actually leading people. They're very, very different. And you can have great competence in one area and very little competence and natural ability in the other. But we, we tend to, and entrepreneurs in particular, tend to think of, oh, I'm a great leader. <laughs> You know, I, I built this business and it's like, oh, ask your people and they're going to tell you an entirely different story because they're in the receiving end of all of the chaos you've created and all of these, you know, up, the ups and downs and the upset and the yelling and the withdrawing and, you know, where's, where's my boss and he's nowhere to be found because, you know, something's going on that interests him and, you know, he's no longer showing up for work, right? And and so they're on the receiving end. It's very different. They're not necessarily leading, 
but they are developing their business. Yeah, no, uh, I'm just trying to think here. Uh, we, we have a few things. So uh, I know you guys wrote a book about imposter syndrome and not maybe not a lot of people are familiar with that so so what what is imposter syndrome and you know why do you think a lot of people deal with that especially as entrepreneurs or in business <laughs> well i think the research says it's something like 70% i think of of people struggle with the imposter syndrome and and we look at it as the it's like a developmental gap or a developmental delay right that where you know we we've brought forward into our adult life sort of all of our childhood survival strategies like the the messages we received as a kid that we're still pulling them out as adults and not because we're feeling threatened in that particular situation or we're you know we haven't really done the developmental work in order to you know connect up the reality of who we are with some of that meant the the um messaging that runs in our brain because of our conditioning so um if you think we we always talk about it you know imposter syndrome it's like that i'm not good enough it's like oh i can't go after that i don't have enough experience or i should know my place or you know i can't say anything in this meeting because like who do i think i am to you know think i'm smarter than anybody else in the room so it's like we've got this voice in our head that we're constant that's constantly measuring up ourselves up against some subjective standard and we always end up coming up short and and that then affects how we behave how we show up um and um the the interactions that we have whether we go after our ambitions don't go after our ambitions um all of these are at play when we are dealing with the imposter syndrome and and just to add to that to give it um a flesh out the context a bit more most people don't know the mechanics of human development. And so, so we we have two, two different systems in the brain and one is there to protect us. And that's what we call our persona. That's the face that we show to the world. And that gets developed first so that we survive. And then we have our authentic self. That That's the piece that we're talking about that because so much energy can go into developing our persona, and our the way we adapt to the world that we don't put any energy into developing our authentic self. And so when it's time, you know, somebody asks a, a simple question like, oh, what are your needs? And, and the person will go, I don't know. I never really thought about me. I'm so busy, you know, protecting myself and taking care of other people. I don't have a clue what I want or how I feel or what's important to me. And, and that can be a really pivotal place for people where they start to set out on that journey of who am I, you know, behind that persona that I bring to the world and put so much energy into helping and pleasing other people that I deny myself what I actually want. And I stay small and protected. And, and that's the agenda of the, you know, the imposter syndrome is to not get hurt. Yeah, I guess for me, I had my first year of business, I honestly had like no faith in myself. I didn't feel I was going to, you know, I felt like, you know, I just can't hack this, you know, maybe I'm just meant to go in and, you know, uh, run other people's businesses and run other people's companies and go in and set up their systems and processes because 
that's typically what I've done. I've gone and corrected systems and processes that a lot of, you know, small businesses or medium, you know, small to medium sized businesses, right. I've gone in and fixed that stuff and taken care of it and kind of created my own culture because a lot of them don't really have a mission, vision or values. Right. And then you kind of like, you know, the first year of my business, you know, I, I've even talked about this publicly. I probably applied for 50 jobs. I was half, half in half out because you know you have that imposter syndrome that you don't feel that yeah. you should be doing this that you're not capable that you you were you're not meant to cut it right but the thing is is had I had I been all into the business and fully believing myself in year one you know I'd be further along I'd probably have two employees underneath right now I'd probably be opened in another market like I'm trying to work on right now and you know there's all these these types of challenges that created because inside your head you're not believing in yourself right it's like taking a taking a kid to learn how to play baseball as a parent and then every time the kid gets up to bat yelling you suck. you can't do this you're gonna miss the ball right it's like that's the voice in our head if we think we never do that to anyone else but the way we talk to ourselves and, and undermine ourselves, that's that sign that we've come out of our comfort zone and the saboteur has kicked in and we're casting doubt so that we'll go back into our comfort zone where we're safe, right? Yeah. And the, you know what, what sort of prompted Anne and I to write the book about the imposter syndrome was you know, a lot of the ways it gets talked about, it's not looked at from that through that developmental lens. And we really wanted to be able to give people the steps that they could follow in order to develop through it. And, and so that, you know, how do we start to, you know, when that voice comes up, there's, you know, the, the school of thought that says, we'll just ignore it or just tell it to go away. But that actually is paying attention to it as opposed to saying, okay, that's an unhelpful thought. What's the helpful thought that I can replace that with? It's like, you know, I'm telling myself I can't do it. And it's like, well, why do I think that? And where's the evidence? And, and let's have a more objective conversation around that thought. So we're, again, we're solidifying the authentic side and we're, we're shoring ourselves up for it. And, and so we, you know, as we work with our clients on this, and, and again, we see it in the tech industry, entrepreneurs, it's, it's quite significant. Uh, as well is you start to see that pattern or those triggers of where it comes out the most. It's like, you know, the entrepreneur who has that need to be liked and to be seen a particular way. Otherwise, that means they're not the great leader or the great entrepreneur and, and them having to work through, as Anne said, the persona piece of it into being more authentic. And, and how how do you really, you know, how are you going to lead your business? How are you going to lead yourself? Um, and so that you can get more grounded around it as opposed to just being reactive and adaptive. I know for me, when I first started, you know, managing staff, I had no idea when I went in and I started our business together and I, I found myself with a whole bunch of people. It was always like, well, I have to be really nice and I have to, you know, have all these events and I have to feed them and I have to like, you know, I go into this caretaking and that's not, that's out of my imposter syndrome because that's about me trying to be seen in a particular way. And it sometimes got in the way of the business because people would see me as more of a friend than their actual boss. And then when I had to move into boss mode, it was uncomfortable for me and I didn't always get the outcome I was looking for. And so with the imposter syndrome, it really does play into our ability to be effective as entrepreneurs and as leaders in particular. 
Yeah. Like I know even, even like last month was a really bad month for the company and just, but I think a lot of people had a bad October. So I just kind of look at, you know, you have those thoughts in the back of your mind of like, I meant to cut out to do this, you know, you know, maybe I wasn't meant, but the thing is, is, is a lot of people, when they have those going on in their head, they don't correct it. And then they just start yeah. believing it. Yeah. Right. Instead of looking at it, like I look at everything as long-term, everything is long-term. I have to look at everything long-term. I'm only two and a half years in for the business. Right. So I have to look at it going, you know what, this is, this is just the Valley. This is, this is where they it tests you. It sees if you're going to push through and what are you going to do with it? And because we made a bunch of changes, you know, we lost a little bit of um, momentum, but that momentum is going to come out a lot stronger because of some of the changes we made in, in the business on kind of like the back end, I guess, or whatever. Right. So we, uh, we had a dot CA, but we also own the dot com, but we were never using the dot com. Well, we finally pushed everything to the dot com. And when you do that, you kind of lose a little momentum on the Google. <laughs> so whatever, it, it's part of the challenges. However, having a dot com, we're going to have a higher ceiling. However, the pain kind of makes you start questioning like, uh, you know, you have those thoughts yeah. and that's that imposter syndrome again, where you like have doubts, like maybe I wasn't cut out for this. Maybe I should go work for someone else. Right. But you have to realize that this is just, this is just part of the game, part of the well, game. And the, the life of the business isn't linear. You, you see, and as long as we've got this idea of, you know, it's a, it's an upward, always an upward trajectory that it's not you know, seasonal, for example, it's like, it's not yeah. going to be up and down. And that, that, you know, when, when we have this automatic kicking ourselves, when we're down, you see that we can't just say, oh, I'm disappointed, you, you know, that I, we didn't meet our targets and, and just be with the disappointment and then move on. Right, that these transactional emotional experiences, as opposed to creating, you know, creating anxiety, creating distress for ourselves by telling ourselves this scary story or story of how we're not enough, that is very depleting and not fun. It takes a fun out of being an entrepreneur when we do that. <laughs> So that's why we're uh, in the business to have fun, to enjoy it. Well, you want to have fun and you, you want to help people out. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. Um, I think this is a, this is a good question. Why are leaders afraid to be called micromanagers? <laughs> oh, I love this one. <laughs> I had this conversation just the other day with a client. So somewhere along the way, we, you know, employees started realizing that if they accused their manager of, of micromanaging, the manager would back off, right? And it was, it, it's a great tool, right? It's a great tool that employees have with their hands and all managers are afraid of that. And, and you're right, micromanaging, like true micromanaging, where you are in there and you're saying, no, don't use that color, you know, do it this way. It's, oh, you use this word, do it that way. And I, I'm going to take the work and I'm going to totally redo it. It's become sort of that term is now used for any manager who goes to manage performance. 
any manager who says, I want it done like this by this timeline, and these are my expectations of you, they're being accused of micromanaging. And, and so managers today are, you know, they've got bought into this notion of, you know, they have to be nice and they have to empower and they have to be hands off and no one's going to want to work with them. And if I manage performance, I'm going to, you know, they're going to leave me. And the notion of being called micromanaging is just some tipping point for them that has them so afraid to lead that they, they just basically abandon their authority and, and sort of hand it over to their employees from that perspective. And so we have a lot of conversations about managing performance is not micromanaging. Let's go back to the actual definition and understanding of what micromanaging truly is, right? So, but it's powerful. Like I love, you know, the, the power yeah. that employees have today, just a simple thing of stop micromanaging me and the, the managers are like, oh, okay. And then all of a sudden the employee gets to, it's like your kid coming to you and saying, you know, stop micro parenting me. And then, so you just <laughs> yeah. decide to not parent them anymore. Right. And you're mean, you're being yeah, you're mean. mean. Stop being mean. <laughs> it's, Be it's, free. It's, it's the equivalent, right? <laughs> yeah. But I, I think, I, you know, to be fair to employees, I said a lot, you know, you you were talking earlier about the um, off camera about the sort of the everybody gets the prize or everybody gets an award sort of thing. Right. And so we have a lot of employees in the workplace that have never been expected to earn. Right. So to, yeah. you know, to work at it, to struggle. And so that level of entitlement. And so when they come into the workplace, they think they are entitled to tell their boss how they're going to do it, when they're going to do it and when the boss corrects them then they're being micromanaged right so employees don't have leaders are sort of having to go back to teaching people how to follow because they're getting employees who have not learned over their development through school and through their parents on how to follow the person who is actually in charge and so it's a really interesting dynamic that okay. that plays out in workplaces today and has caused leaders to be incredibly permissive in their approach to managing people so like when we're talking about the whole 17th ribbon for first place or whatever, that kind of stuff, that's where we kind of get into that whole thinking of winners win, right? So if you don't learn how to win, how can you be successful, right? And competition is a very big thing. You know, when I was in hockey, you know, you either won the playoffs or you lost, right? Yeah, and you were out. And and yeah. that's you either were the winner or you were the loser. I mean, I, I mean, I, maybe that's negative saying loser, but at the same time, you know, if you went through the the school system, and you're being given a, you know, we have kids a participation medal instead of being told you're, you know, you were first place or second place. I know myself growing up, I used to be a long distance runner, and we'd be I was number one, tied for first place at twenty six school divisions for first place i had a second second and a first on three runs and the other guy had first first and third and because of that we had the same ranking right but we had they only gave out first second or third there was nothing else after that right because there was you know a thousand people running in this race right so you know but that's that whole thing where i wanted to win and i wanted to be the best and i wanted to to get better every single day and that whole team environment. And if you're not uh, developing those skills, even in school, for instance, where, you know, you got the highest mark, you know, you got a 95 out of a hundred, you know, that kind of stuff is, is what um, instills winning qualities in people to get better. 
And then when they go into the workforce, you want to find a way to continue that. Like, you know, how were you in school? Do you want to keep winning? Were you know, were you first place as as in hockey? Were you what, what were you like? But when they all of a sudden get told they're doing everything wrong, it's like, well, why am I not getting a medal for this? <laughs> right? Like, I thought I'm doing a good job. Well, it's confusion, Eddie, right? The over focus and on you know on on what people will feel if they don't come in first. That the the idea that human beings are not capable of tolerating coming in fourth that, you know, it's going to traumatize their poor little brains. And so, you know, it's, it's that over-controlling that parents do when they control every single one of their kids' experience and not allow them to experience setbacks, frustration, failure, and, and to really put in all of the work it takes to actually master something. So, so what we're doing is we're raising a whole generation of of kids that are dependent on the world to make them feel the way they want to feel. And if we don't, we're the bad guys. Yeah. And, so, and so those who are ambitious are quote unquote bad guys. Those who are assertive or even aggressive in driving their agenda, they're bad and they're wrong because they make other people feel like they're less than. Well, you know, so we all have to stay small so that everybody is neutralized. Yeah, and one of the things we've noticed too, a lot of our, our leadership clients um, are frustrated by is that they have these employees who, you know, because they've done it once, they feel they should get a promotion. Well, I did that. So therefore, you know, you should promote me now. Or because I've shown up for a year, um, you know, now, now it's time for me to get a promotion. And there isn't any sense of, you know, for them, you know, when, when you go, when, when you, the example you were giving, right, when I go and I run a race or I play sports or something, the rules are really clear and I can keep score. In the workplace, you know, a lot of times leaders are not being explicit around expectations. What does success look like? How do you move from one level to the other? So employees are deciding for themselves that, well, you know, I've been here for six months and I've worked really hard and I think I know everything. So promote me now. And, and so it isn't there. They we've shifted because they've been raised with no expectation. And again, we get you just show up and you get participation awards, right? You, you just show up and you get moved to the next grade, whether you got the marks or not right and and so you translate that into the workplace and people aren't looking at things in that more objective way of what do I need to do and how do I earn it and how do I prove that I'm capable I mean I know when I started working that was it it's like how do I show my boss that I'm I'm good and I can do my job really well and how do I impress my boss we don't see that in the workplace to the same degree because it that expectation wasn't on them that they had to come and actually impress somebody. I can't tell you the number of interviews I've sat with where it's just appalling. It's like they make no effort at all because in their minds, they're already good enough. And so they don't have to do anything and we just should just know how great they are, right? So it's a fascinating dilemma for leaders because they're having to navigate managing and developing performance in this context. Yeah, when, you, when we're talking about you know, with micromanaging and everything too, there's a certain level of inspect what you expect, right? Where you need to inspect the expectations of your staff. Yeah. But then and there performance comes performance management. Yeah. 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 And it comes to a point where you've inspected it, you've set the expectations, 
and then you should be able to let them go for a while. And then every once in a while, you should inspect. And that's not considered micromanaging. It's the ones where it's like every single thing you have to watch what yeah. they're doing, right? Yeah, and that's driven by a boss's anxiety, you see. that That's very different than performance management where we're, you know, <laughs> setting expectations, inspecting, allowing, you know, coaching, all of those things that we need to do. But it's, it's, it's for the whole, it's for the collective. It's not just because the, the leader's anxious about whether or not the employee is going to succeed. Yeah. Yeah, no, this was, uh, this was awesome. We had like lots of really good, lots of really good information here for entrepreneurs. I could tell you on this yes. episode. So do you guys, do you have any final comments or any words of wisdom you'd like to give to the audience? Well, one of the things we always, always say to folks is that, you know, any, any development as an, as an entrepreneur, any development as a leader always starts with self-awareness. And, and so if, if you are looking to move out of, the, the place that you're in where you're complaining about this employee or this circumstance or whatever it is, it's it's start the journey by by doing some work around your own self-awareness, around your your capabilities and what you might be contributing to the scenario. And and as you said early, earlier, Ben, it, around, you know, entrepreneurs need to recognize when they need help and ask for it and getting themselves a coach or a mentor is is really critical to getting them through those difficult times where you know they're in in the process of going through their cycle again where they start to devolve the business so heather and ann how do how does if somebody wanted to get a hold of you how would they get a hold of you so everything's available. Uh, all the information about our books or resources, how to contact us is on our website, dranitsaris-hilliard.com. So hopefully you'll put that in the show notes so we don't have to spell it out. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, awesome. <laughs> or to visit our, our website, caliberleadership.com. That might be an easier... <laughs> But sell. <laughs> but sell for for those those leaders or entrepreneurs that are looking for help in in uh, guiding their business. Yeah, that's awesome. I appreciate you appreciate you coming on and having discussion with the, with me today. I think our audience is going to love this. And uh, thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks so, much so much for having us, Ben. <laughs>